fell over and died. And I was like, oh, what an incredible but unsatisfying victory this just was. <laughs> like, I, I feel like I didn't earn this at all, and yet this is incredible because I have no idea how I would have overcome this otherwise. <laughs> well, they give you that they give you that jellyfish summon, which just spews poison on people. So that I may assume have been it. It was, it was either they the jellyfish to... or the stray dog was poisoning him for me, yeah. So, so I assume they must want you to try that. Since, since we've been having positive experiences not winning a game the way we feel we should supposed to, you're probably listening to the Big Bang Theory Theory. Hi, I'm Nick. And I'm Kyle. And this is a show where uh, this was all recorded. Well, this wasn't recorded. We discussed pre-recording that uh, we have a show here where we watch the television series, The Big Bang Theory. Uh, we don't exclusively complain about it, but we do tend to have negative reviews of it, and people really dislike that. <laughs> um, but... I was I was looking for an example of a positive Big Bang Theory cast, and if that's what you're into, I haven't listened to this, but I'm going to go ahead and just uh, blindly recommend the Big Bang Buzzcast. But I I looked it up on iTunes and I saw that its reviews are as middling as ours, and so even if it is a more positive fan cast, apparently there's just no winning. Whether you like this show or not, uh, everyone hates you. So. Thanks for listening to us. Whether you like us or not, we appreciate having you around. And yeah, what we do on the show is we we watch the television series, The Big Bang Theory. I will briefly summarize the most recent episode, which today is going to be the season five finale. Only seven more years of this left, dear audience. How will you get along without us once the majority of the next decade has passed? But mostly it is a jumping off platform so we can talk about nerdy things that we actually do enjoy. Uh, and that we would recommend you check out either in addition to or instead of The Big Bang Theory. Now, Kyle, this is normally where I would jump into our... Well, no, I always fuck it up. I consistently fuck it up since we started doing our ratings. Before I do the short summary, do you have an off-the-cuff rating for this episode? Which sure. is official title, Season 5, Episode 24, The Countdown Reflection. Yeah, I'll give it a 5 out of 13. Oh, pretty low down there. Well, I mean, it's not – to me, it's not – I did – let me put like the uh, – in the – I'll put it qualitatively. I mean, there that was wasn't nothing, terrible. Like, it yeah, wasn't four was nothing, or lower. Yeah. There's nothing I hated about this episode or that really made it – it was just pretty much – everything I thought was going to happen happened exactly like I thought it was going to happen. Uh, there are uh, one or two lines I think made me chuckle, but I've already forgotten what they were, so we can't talk. I should have made a note. Yeah. Kyle, I'm, I'm pretty close to you, though. Even though if I think five is low, uh, I'm going to go six because I think the structure of this episode was frustrating because it's so the, the basic plot of this is Wallowitz finally takes a space mission. Spoiler alert for anyone that didn't watch this, what, 15 years ago or whenever it came out. Yeah, this whole season has been building up to whether he's actually going to take the space flight and uh, he does. But it's presented in what would, in any other show, be like a flashback recap episode, except none of this is actually recap. Like, if they just keep going to to the day of the launch and intercutting that with uh, scenes from, like, just the few days before. Yeah, I, which is, why did they do it that way now that I think so about strange. it? It's so strange. Like, initially I thought that it was going to be scenes, like that were develop like showing the development of Wallowitz and Bernadette's relationship. 
And then pretty immediately it becomes clear that, oh, no, this is from like three days ago. And then, yeah, why this back and forth kind of time travel thing, especially when what's happening. So like the, the present moment from Wallowitz's perspective, he is in the capsule on the rocket that is about to launch. And there's no effect that the other events that they're having have on what's happening in the capsule, neither directly nor in the context or, or you know what I'm getting carried away let's let's get into this short summary and then we can do this nitpicking so short summary of today's episode you know pretty much all a plot aside from the weird structural stuff I just mentioned Wallowitz is going to space and so episode starts with him in the capsule with his fellow astronauts cosmonauts whatever you want to call them it is clear that uh, apparently Wallowitz is the only one in the capsule who doesn't speak Russian that doesn't really come into play at all but it seems like an oversight on the mission's part that two out of three of them can speak Russian and Wallowitz just kind of has to deal. I mean, the other two can speak English, by the way. He's not just completely left out, but it seemed weird. Um, and so while he is preparing to launch, the rest of the gang are all at Leonard and Sheldon's apartment watching from TV, and they're all anxious and looking forward to, to the big blast-off. And then, as mentioned, meanwhile, it starts cutting back to scenes that have happened in the preceding days where in the end of the last episode is revealed that because the space launch mission, the schedule had well, escalated isn't right, but pushed forward that Wallowitz's launch was going to interfere with the wedding. And so Bernadette and Wallowitz decide, oh, hey, you know what? Let's just go get a real quick courthouse wedding. Let's do it. But they get there too late in the day. It doesn't work out. And so then I think it was Raj proposes, it was either Raj or Sheldon proposes, that they do the wedding this next Sunday morning because that will be when a satellite is passing overhead that could then photograph the wedding from space. And that stood out to me as like one of those few like genuinely nerdy moments that I feel like real nerds would be excited about and want to do. I don't know. That to me, I was like, that's actually a really cool idea, Raj. That's the kind of thing that people who seem to be genuinely interested in in space and the stars and such would, would want to take advantage of. Anywho, so, and we're cutting back and forth. Wallowitz is back in the capsule. He learns there's a fuel leak, and he freaks out, and the other two guys are like, yeah, there's fuel leaks sometimes. Whatever. It's a rocket. What are you going to do? Sometimes sometimes rocks explode and you die. One out of ten times. And uh, it's it's revealed that uh, Wallowitz's nickname is Fruit Loops, uh, the no, Russian. That's, oh, it, oh. it was revealed before, but it's it's brought up again, and the the primarily Russian uh, astronaut uh, asks, quote unquote, if it's because of Wallowitz's gay haircut, which gets half a chuckle, and he clarifies, no, it's because the other astronaut knows that my mom serves me Fruit Loops every morning. Thank you very much. Then a, we were cutting back and forth between the wedding and the launch. The wedding happens, uh, and it's kind of cute. The ceremony is not done by any individual pastor or officiant or whatever the hell you want to call them. Instead, each of the nerds got ordained, and so they all together do the ceremony, and they all have their own contributions to the ceremony and why they think it should go forward. And, you know, they all had their own obnoxious little nerd quirks to it, but it was something that I thought was actually genuinely sweet and that I thought would be a good thing to do at a real wedding. And then Wallowitz, uh, in the present day, he launches, and all of the friends at the apartment watch, and they all hold each other's hands to support each other as as their little friend blasts off to the stars. 
And that is the end of season five. And it marks, I mean, more or less five years of us doing the show. So this is a, a big moment for us, for the Big Bang Theory. And audience, I hope you're having a, a great day as well, wherever you are, whatever. Now, let's let's talk about how all of this was stupid dog shit and get some more bad iTunes reviews. Uh, Kyle, do you have anything you want to get into initially? I mean, Sheldon wants to do the service. Speaking of genuinely nerdy things, Sheldon thinks that they should do the service in Klingon, which is both a ridiculous suggestion, but I am actually surprised that they shoot it down so quickly because I don't really think that there's any i it seems like i mean someone's got to have done that right like there's definitely people have gotten married this is on yes i think you are absolutely right i think this is something that everyone involved except bernadette was into i think even penny was like i've been around these other freaks long enough that i expect klingon just to happen naturally now and then but yeah bernadette uh very vocally uh, is against anything being done in Klingon. And as I mentioned during the ceremony, all of the nerds carry out a part of the ceremony, and uh, Sheldon starts reading in Klingon, and Bernadette gives him a real nasty look, and, uh, hey, I'm going to get real close to the mic because I want this to be as creepy as possible. I want Bernadette to give me that look. <laughs> I like I like Bernadette looking real mean and nasty. I like it when she, she looks like she wants to hurt somebody. I'm just going to be real about that. Um, but yeah, that, I guess, and I'm not, I'm not gonna, I don't think this is a fault of Bernadette, you know, it's her wedding, she gets it how she wants to have it, but yeah, there's a, there's a point where Klingon, I think, has been so overused in nerd shit that it's not even a joke anymore, that if someone just starts busting things out in Klingon, any other nerd who has ever stopped and thought, oh yeah, I'm a nerd, just has to know that they're just going to get hit with Klingon someday, and they're, they're just going to walk it off, because that's part, that's part of the life, you know? That's the world we walk in. Science fiction, like, just be lucky that we're not dealing with, uh, oh, oh, have I forgotten the word? The, uh, the super cool manufactured language that was going to unite all languages that I can't remember now. Esperanto? Esperanto, yes. I feel like I have been blissfully unaware of Esperanto for years, but Klingon will never die. <laughs> so I, uh, this isn't a really complaint about the show, but like the very first scene reminded me of something that I related to Wallowitz with, which is a, they're, they're all in the, the, the pod getting ready to launch and the other two astronauts are kind of like, all right, here we go, big mission, whatever, you know, no big deal, we've done it before, we're going to do it again. And Wallowitz talks about uh, like how he's really excited to show the other guys how good he is at crying and to exclaim how badly he wants off. And they, they kind of laugh about it. But it reminded me of, uh, as, a, as a tween, maybe even younger, maybe like eight or nine years old, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the carnival ride, The Zipper, but it's this like long... Uh, like, not cylindrical. It's it's like a conveyor belt that has spinning carts attached to it, but the the conveyor belt itself is raised up in the air and is like a hundred feet long, and it itself spins. So you're, you've got like three different devices spinning, and you're you know it's something to make you barf and scared. Uh, and as an eight year old, I remember getting on that ride with my friend and being like, "We are ready for this. We are the bravest individuals ever, and we are never going to be the same after this." 
and then getting to the top and being like, this was the greatest mistake we've ever made. I'm glad that we're here to support each other and recognize that this was a terrible decision. And now let's scream for our lives so the nice Carney will let us go. And that's exactly what we did. And then nice Carney did not let us go. And we just kept screaming and screaming and screaming until it was all done. And now I am the powerful man that you all get to spend with uh, every two weeks with. So, yeah, that's. I think it's about the same as going to space. Is what I'm trying to say. I feel like yeah, you're I, basically an astronaut. That's how I feel. Yeah, I've been through what Wallowitz has been through. I understand his pain. And you know what, Wallowitz? I'm not going to say it's no big deal. I was scared too. Okay, and we're both stronger for it. Oh, I mean, I guess that. So in terms of, so I get like to me that's. I mean, it makes sense as a season finale. That uh, that basically this episode is just wrapping up a bunch of peripheral like it it exists mostly to just like wrap up this whole are Bernadette are Bernadette and Wallow it's really gonna get married uh, arc of the show uh, it ends with I guess a slightly touching shot of basically all of Wallowitz's friends sitting around on a couch holding each other's hands including uh, Sheldon actually takes Amy's hand which I think for him is a pretty big deal so. Yeah, so, like, that's something that um, when I was watching it as part of the episode, I kind of brushed it off because I was so uh, overcome by Raj and Bernadette holding hands. I thought that was very sweet. And, so of course, Leonard and Penny do. But, yeah, when Sheldon and Amy do, it is Sheldon who makes the move. And knowing Sheldon, not in any sort of sexy way, of course, but just in a genuine wants support because he's worried about his friend way sheldon maybe not even consciously expressing feelings and needing support from amy <laughs> so yeah that was very sweet um yeah i don't it's like weird it's i think maybe the problem i'm having with this episode because like i don't really have a lot of complaints about it but it also didn't have a lot of jokes like it it yeah. capped off the arc that wallowitz was gonna go to space but like like you just said, it, it did just kind of like wrap things up. But and at the same time, what what was becoming the more interesting thing, which is well, it's more interesting in my mind anyway, which is that Penny and Leonard are trying to get into this: are we or are we not ratcheting back up into like a full fledged romantic relationship? continues to be like referenced and there's a lot of focus on it making fun of Leonard in this episode for uh um proposing during sex uh but none of it is resolved and none of it is really brought to the forefront so if that is not entirely what season six is about I don't know what any of this was for (laughs) so we'll see how that goes um oh I was gonna say that was the one and now I remember the one part where I kind of chuckled in this episode was uh uh, uh, you know, Penny, when she's giving her wedding vows, or not giving her wedding vows, I'm sorry, when she is saying something for the sake of the married couple, yeah. you know, she says a very cliched thing about how important love is, and, you know, it doesn't really matter if it's all perfect or whatever, you should just be happy when you find it, and basically, basically, it's a, it's a long, syrupy way of saying, you know, settle for the good things in your life that you have, and hold on to them, and Leonard is just like, huh, I don't know, something about, like, the, the perfect passive-aggressive tying. I mean, it, I really think it's, it's – uh, I really want to give it to the actor because I think it's harder to pull off that kind of delivery 
than uh, than I appreciate because he manages to yeah. land it in just such a way where she says that and then his huh is just like it it's much more potent than if he'd turned and said oh come on fuck no, you you're right and I th- I think we should dwell on that for a moment because that's something that may have been good writing I'm not sure <laughs> because. Yeah, Penny, like like you just said, gives her a little, you know, a bit of speech about what love is and, you know, accepting it when you find it, kind of no matter where or when. And Leonard, like, like says nothing other than this kind of, ah! And everyone else gets exactly why he makes that noise. <laughs> I don't mean, I don't mean us audience members. I mean, in the show, everyone's like looking at Leonard and Penny like, that's really what you're gonna say, Penny. You're gonna stand next to Leonard, and you're gonna you're gonna say all that right in front of him, and and it was really good. Um, it also it, it brought me back to um, a very brief Nick Hyde oversharing personal life story. Nick's oversharing life stories. It's Nick's oversharing life stories time. I really should, uh, you know, get some other sound effects to play over this. You know, maybe a little keyboard or something. But I'm bump. No one has ever proposed to me during sex, but uh, when I was once, uh, you know, I, we were casually dating this lady and I, and one time during sexy times, she was like, hey, can I be your girlfriend? And I will say, that was the most I'd ever wanted anyone to be my girlfriend. That's the way to do it. If you're ever like, oh, I don't know if he wants to date me or not, ask during sex. That seems like a really good time to do that. Now, when I've kind of mentioned that to other friends, particularly ladies, uh, as a thing that I thought was really kind of funny and sweet. They have all, I think, uniformly reacted, oh, that is like the height of emotional manipulation. If that's the case, I'm fine with it. Manipulate <laughs> me like that. If, if, if you want to appeal to both my, my physical and mental health intimacy needs simultaneously, that kicks ass. That's great. If while that's happening, you're like, feeding me bites of a burrito and like we're and we're watching i don't know like a funny cartoon or something that that's great like keep keep positively manipulate manipulating yeah, that's me. An interesting you know i because i do think i had the knee jerk reaction that's a little manipulative too but the more i think about it the more i'm coming down and it's like as opposed to what alternative it's like what are it's like yes hey uh, this is pretty this is pretty fun this is pretty good would you like to continue doing this and maybe call it another thing that generally signifies that we're going to keep doing stuff like this yeah hey lady i've been spending a lot of time with and uh i'm currently inside of i don't want to be too forward but um maybe would you like to do this like on a regular basis that would be cool yeah it, it would be really nice when this experience is done to be able to look forward to it happening again not wonder if it's going to happen yeah so i mean you know, everyone who's yeah, saying so it's I'm manipulation, I can't say no. I'm not going to say that's not manipulative. But I'm going to say, like, I'm perfectly happy being manipulated in that way. <laughs> like, if the, if the next lady I end up dating goes about it in that way, and I, I have similarly positive feelings for her, double thumbs up. That said, you know, if, if me and some rando are just, you know banging out our problems in a drunken haze and she pulls that shit on me uh my cat and i are are moving before the end of the night that's that's too much so ah anyway okay something that i liked but also because it speaks to one of my own uh hang-ups is uh not leonard uh wallowitz gets 
all of the groomsmen gifts in the form of valuable comic books. And Sheldon takes issue with his, not not because he doesn't like it, not because he doesn't genuinely appreciate the gift, but because he recalls the last gift that he gave Wallowitz, and he knows that the gift he has received, because it is a specific comic book and he knows its value, is more valuable than the last gift that he gave Wallowitz, and he does not want to be indebted to Wallowitz for whatever value the $12 difference could be worth. And so he insists on I, I re- returning to Wallowitz the 12 or $8 difference or whatever it ends up being. And on the one hand, well, no, that's he obviously... Gives him, he gives him $12 and it's like, oh wait, I forgot I also got you a card. You, you give me back $2. Yes, that's, that is exactly it. And that's obviously an insane thing to do. But like, I'm on Sheldon's side a little bit because... I love gift giving. I love when I see a thing and I'm like, oh man, I bet so-and-so would really like that. I'll, I'll get that to them and that's a nice way of letting them know I'm thinking of them and they'll feel appreciated and that's all great. But I hate reciprocal gift giving because that's like a bluff. That is like two people playing chicken with each other's worth. And I, it's And what Sheldon is doing here is obviously comical. This is a funny ha-ha show. We're all having a good time. But I think he's he's speaking to the bigger issues here. All right? But that's like, have you ever... Uh, uh, this is going to be a, a tangent. And it's not going to be as interesting a tangent as your tangent. But I can't Re- now Really that... sell us on it. Really, really let us know to hit the skip 30 button. <laughs> yes. You ever read that story? You know, they made us read in school, The Gift of the Magi. The one where the O. Henry one, where the dude sells his watch so he can get his wife like a hairbrush, and then it turns out that she sold her hair because that's the thing you used to be able to do, so she could get him like a new watch band. Yeah, and and they 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 trade all their gifts in such a way that the gifts they get are useless. Yeah. Yes, and that's always that's always presented as like, oh, it's such a sweet story, and I'm always like. Whenever I like, I remember very distinctly the first time I read it, and every subsequent time since being like, "This is horrifying. This is a horror story. There's nothing sweet about this." If you were to, if this were to ha- like two seconds after this is just like, you know, "Hey asshole, why didn't you tell me you were getting a brush?" You know, yeah. a hint would have been nice. No, I think you're right because if you focus on the intent alone, you're all good. These people. Nothing but love in their hearts made sacrifices to benefit some other, you know, selfless sacrifices. But in the end, they're all worse off. Yeah. Like, like if anyone had communicated or, or, been, or you know, like dropped a hint, be like, hey, I see you uh, got a lot of hair there that... <laughs> I don't know. You've been you've been asking about its worth lately. Just want to make sure that that's not an issue for you. This <laughs> is something to check in before yeah. a series of blind exchanges that benefit no one. Yeah, hot take. That story sucks. Um, but also, the other thing I always think about that is, if I were the dude, I'd be like, oh, it, it, and the girl were like, oh, look, we got each other two uh, completely equal gestures. I would be like, well, yeah, but you know, your hair grows back. Watches don't fucking. They're not a biological construct. I'm not going to wait six months and grow another watch. But maybe it's one of those, like, I remember, I think in, definitely in middle school, but I think in the high school, there's this uh, girl in my school who 
uh, I think she had literally never had a haircut, except maybe to, you know, trim off um, split ends or whatever. But, you know, long hair down past her ass, maybe even down past her knees at some point. So she was Rapunzeling it. She absolutely was, yes. And maybe it was that kind of hair where you cut that hair, that's fine. You will grow more hair. You're not going to grow that hair. That is a lifetime achievement hair. And I doubt that's the case. You know, this is a hypothetical extreme example where one of these magi with infinitely beautiful flowing locks decided that that was what they had to get rid of. Realistically, I mean, we're all, it's probably, it was shitty old hair, right? These magi, I don't know what the fuck a magi is. I play too many video games. I assume that they the- know spells. But that's all I know. <laughs> the the Magi, I mean, the title in particular, uh, the Magi is another name for the wise men who visited Jesus. Yes. Who, oh, so you do know. Well, you so, being... I, no, I, I, I know only um, surface level yeah, allusions. I get, okay, that's fine. Yeah, I don't know what the, like, I don't know, like, what that term means or if it means yeah. anything. I, well, I did I do like to imagine that they were wizards. I do admit that's cool. They were like, yo. No, it's 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 one of those things where I kind of take for granted now, but like most of my understanding of mythology, whether that be biblical or um Greek seems too limited. Mediterranean doesn't make sense. You know, that area. <laughs> Ancient uh, Western mythology, yeah. or Greco-Roman mythology, Greco-Roman, yes, or any or anything Eastern, any mythology at all. I have learned through the impish, perverted minds of Japanese game developers, and so whenever I've encountered the actual mythology, I've had to somehow make that square up with whatever video game equivalent I know. And in the end, I've I've come to I've I've come to accept that. I know vast more about origin stories of various cultures than the average person, but also I have unrealistic expectations of what any of those deities like MP Stash should be. And that creates issues when we're, we're talking about theology because they're all like, oh, if he could do anything, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, well, he's... It's not a good build. More strength, less magic. So yeah, that uh, reminds. So one of the first things. Uh, I mean, this is if you want to talk about the what's the word? I'm not toxicity, uh, but just if you if you want a real example of how nerds are and also how obnoxious they can be. The Gary Gygax, the father and creator of Dungeons and Dragons, got mad at his players for, you know, occasionally having, like, for introducing in campaigns that they were running after, this was really early days. This was, like, super early D&D, and people would put, like, King Arthur or something in, like, one of their stories, and then their characters would beat King Arthur. And so he released an official book of his stats for all of the great mythological characters. It was called Deities and Demigods, and it was like the sixth book ever published in Dungeons and Dragons, which was specifically only to show that like actually King Arthur is like an is like a sixteenth level paladin, thirty-fourth level fighter with ten thousand hit points, and you could never and Excalibur has like plus fourteen to hit, and you could never beat King Arthur in a fight, you fucking rube. 
Well, I mean, if Gygax says it, what what are the rest of us supposed to do? But also, that is hilariously petty and insane. <laughs> that's <sighs> that's like uh, this is a, a completely different thing. But um, I saw on Twitter the other day someone just very very surface level, totally inane tweet comparing the heights of heights and ages. Uh, Vladimir Putin and Elon Musk and hypothesizing who would win. Uh, apparently Elon, you know, has both the age and height benefit. And then Elon Musk himself commenting to it on be like, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> God, what a, what a man who just does not know how to not be a dick. Well, also, it's, I, I've got mixed feelings. It's like, yeah, he's, he's the pits, obviously. But I don't know if I like him less or someone that would look at him and be like, "That's my guy." <laughs> That's true. It's not. It's not his fault that he's. And also, uh, isn't like Vladimir Putin has killed people with his bare hands. I mean, I'm not saying recently. Oh yeah, no, he knows how to murder. <laughs> like, like he may be rusty. He was, he's like he a real a, deal. James. He was a real deal. Like James Bond villain in his yes. prime. No, yeah, Elon Musk is a uh, like. Here's the thing. All right, I don't know why I'm trying to add any sort of buffer to this because I doubt that we have an audience full of rabid Elon Musk fans, but you're the, I hate Elon Musk and not because of any one particular stance, but because like he's the ultimate like charlatan, you know, like he's smart. Yes, but he's not the smartest guy in the world. He's not self-built. He's not going to save us all, but People proclaim that, and he's absolutely happy to ride along that and, and buy into his own hype, and that's great. Vladimir Putin knows how to murder people. Yeah, I he's, mean, he's, he's literally... He's been trained in how to murder people. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> he's, he was a literal, like, secret agent. He uh, He's probably shot people in the back of the head before yeah. in his life. And I believe there are photos, like, he's a, there's a weird Russian martial art that's like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but even more insane, because it mostly involves, like, breaking people's, like, ankles and stuff like that. It's called yeah. Sambo, and I think, like, Vladimir Putin is, like, a black belt in it. You know, so he's yeah. literally like there. Are, he's literally trained in hand to hand. I mean, I don't want to now. I want to pull it back because I feel like all of a sudden I'm sounding like a Vladimir Putin stan. Not a well, fan well, of. Hey, not a oh, fan wait, of. Let me, hey, everyone, context, context, context. Kyle is not a Vladimir Putin stan. This is specifically if we were to put Vladimir Putin <laughs> and Elon Musk in a cage, <laughs> who would we bet on? If we were, I support if, if we were, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, if we were statting them in Dungeons and Dragons, yes, and we yeah. wanted to figure out their threat levels. Is Elon younger? Yes. Is he is he taller? Yes. Does he have the reach advantage because he's taller? Also, probably yes. Who knows? Maybe he's got stumpy arms, but I think it's a fair assumption that he's got the reach. But... Vladimir Putin undisputably knows how to kill people. <laughs> Elon Musk might know that. Or maybe there's about Elon Musk we don't know. That's a, yeah, <laughs> probably not. Uh, you know, um, that's like I'm sure you've heard this story. In fact, our audience is probably. I feel like everyone's heard this story now, but it's one of my favorite stories, so it's always worth repeating. Christopher Lee, the late great Christopher Lee, was also a secret agent. I didn't um, know that. 
You didn't know that? No. I, oh, I know mostly st- about him being an incredibly imposing actor who later got super into, like, heavy and black metal. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, buckle in. You're going to like this story. Uh, I'll try to make it short, but... Whatever. So Chris- Take it as long as you like. This, is epi- yeah. this isn't a numerically significant episode. Season 5 finale, baby. Indulge. Yeah. So Christopher Lee uh, was a secret agent in World War II. And in fact, some pe- I swear to God this is true, his cousin was Ian Fleming. And some people think he might have been the uh, inspiration for James Bond. And so, you know, and then he went on to be an, inc- an actor in like 10 million things. Uh, he played Dracula with, and a thousand other things. And then late in life, yes, he was in, he played... Uh, Soromon and Dartha whatever in Star Wars. So he kind of had a late, he kind of had a late breaking career as a nerd standout. But my favorite Christopher Lee story is in the middle of filming, uh, Return of the King with Peter Jackson. It's the scene where Sauron gets, uh, not Sauron, Soromon gets, uh, betrayed and stabbed by his underling. And so Peter Jackson is trying to walk him through and he's like, okay, so at this point, you know, uh, He's going to stab you in the chest, and you're probably going to make a noise like, ah! And and apparently Christopher Lee looked at him and said, you know, you don't need to tell me what it looks, what it sounds like when somebody gets stabbed in the chest and dies, okay? Oh, that, that rules. I had no idea about that with Christopher Lee. If anything, I know, uh, when you talk about him being a possible inspiration or the actual James Bond, I think about him. I think I recommended this once on the podcast, the, the sketch show Snuffbox. Yes, we have yeah. talked about Snuffbox. Which I have to reiterate every time I, I bring it up. Isn't that good? <laughs> like, I love it, but it's, yeah, it's it's a mess. But there is not, a, It's definitely not the best thing Matt Berry has ever done, for sure. No, no, no. It, it's very much like, if you watch what we do in the shot, excuse me, if you like watch what we do in the shadows and you fall in love with Matt Berry, that's that's great. And then if you're like, oh, what kind of weird shit did he used to do in college? That's Snuffbox. <laughs> Even though he was, you know, not nearly that age, but whatever. But there's a there's a sketch where uh, Christopher Lee is on the set of a porno, and he's too professional and stern <laughs> and scary to work with. And so, like, he's he's supposed to get start a scene where he starts making out with a lady and gets blown. <laughs> he's so rich, and it's Matt Berry playing him. And he's like, mm, what a charming prospect. Oral copulation in exchange for a pizza for which I did not have the monetary compensation to remunerate. And they're like, what are you doing, Frankenstein? Get off the set! And it's very stupid, but uh, I like stupid things. And so, you know, go find, go find that later if you want to have a little treat. Christopher Lee treat. Awesome. Can I assume we're done talking about the episode? It feels like I, I it, think right? we're on the same. We, yeah, that was it. I think the the point where we're both just talking about how fucking cool Christopher Lee is is a point where we have moved on from the the plot of the episode. But you know, we give our ratings. We both agree it was a totally so so episode. Uh, you know, I want to say it was plot substantive, but I mean everything that mattered happened before this. This was just the most obvious ultimate conclusion. Uh, the only other way this could have turned out is Wallowitz not going to space, and it all worked out anyway. Um, so either way, this is fine. We've finished season five. God, I hope that audience, you're trauma bonding with us, because I have no idea why else we'll stick around, except for our bi-weekly nerdy recommendations of things that we actually enjoy. Mine 
is not a do-over, but it is directly related to my last one, so I feel like I'm cheating. I'll hit it? Okay. So, last time we got together, I recommended Elden Ring, and I recommended it specifically because, unlike previous games in the Souls series, it is the first one where I didn't feel like when I got to a difficult boss fight that I was just stuck beating my head against the wall until I finally, either the the wall broke or my, my head broke. But the one Souls game that I've always really wanted to get into, the, most, most of them haven't appealed to me. The, the thing that appealed to me most, because I'm a, a sick pervert, is the hardcore punishing gameplay. And when that wasn't enough, and then I hear this game Bloodborne came out, and this is years ago now, in that it is a very gothic uh, and quite specifically H.P. Lovecraft-inspired game. That's where I'm like, ooh, baby, just fucking put it in my veins. I want it, I want it, I want it. And I bought it years ago and found it too miserable to play. And I don't want to say it's a bad game. That's the thing that's even more frustrating about the Souls games is that I can recognize that they're great games, that there is nothing wrong with the game that it is me yeah. who is yet to get good and that sucks yeah it's like dating someone who's too attractive for you it's just like oh. it's like it's like i i should feel lucky that i'm getting to have this experience but i just feel intimidated and sad yeah like oh hey we're out we're having fun i just have to sit here as incredibly handsome guys come and hit on you and i just have to take it and wonder what you see in me but this is the arrangement we have. So cool. Um, not at all speaking for personal experience, other than every relationship I've ever been in. But playing Elden Ring, and I mentioned this on the last show as well, made me think, ah, I'm really getting into this. Maybe I can go back, revisit one of these Old Souls games, particularly Bloodborne, and with the understanding I have now, take those skills back and move forward. And I did that, and it didn't work out <laughs> until... Oh, no. Until I beat my head against that wall so many fucking times that I broke through. Bloodborne, blood-starved beast, you're a bitch. You caused me agony. You caused me to restart the game and really rethink about my build and how to more effectively use my items. And then I did that, and then I pushed through. And I'm now at the end of the game. I'm having some more problems. But this is the furthest I've made it. I'm really enjoying it. And here's the thing. I'm not going to say that everyone should go out and play Bloodborne or any of the other Souls games. But to me, after literally years, this I think Bloodborne came out in like 2015. I bought it maybe like two years after it came out because I was not an early adopter or anything. And I loved it, but it was, it just, it was miserable. And now, five years after that, I'm finally actually enjoying it and it is an incredibly rewarding experience and not just because of the gameplay if anything getting better at the game to me and this is a sick thing that i need to discuss in therapy makes me kind of bored (laughs) like once i like get good at it then i'm like oh i get it now i've overcome all right on to the next challenge this is i'm done uh but the the lovecraftian setting that initially drew me in is what i really love about the game um, and for anyone completely unfamiliar with Bloodborne, it is set 
uh, wholly apart from the other Souls games. The other Souls games are in this vaguely kind of medieval European setting, even though they're a Japanese developer, it's, it seems like very European medieval. And Bloodborne is very much set in like Victorian urban settings, but these settings are largely abandoned because you have woken up on the night of the hunt. As in any Souls game, no one will tell you what that means. <laughs> Yeah, everyone will talk to you in the vaguest terms possible, but what it means is that you're alone in a city full of horrible human-esque creatures that get increasingly malformed as you progress through the game, all of whom want to murder you, and you are just looking for that good, good pale blood. And um, so many of the actual mechanics play into broader kind of Lovecraftian mythology in a way that I really love. And something that's challenging about it too, though, is that none of them are adequately explained. One of the big uh, parts about the game is like your, your main currency instead of souls is blood echoes, literally the same thing. Um, but you also get insight, which is, um, for anyone unfamiliar with Lovecraft... They're very common themes of average or maybe, you know, like intelligent uh, wisdom seekers who find the wisdom they're looking for, but it is so overwhelming that it drives them mad. And it's usually someone's progeny trying to figure out why their family is so fucked up, goes and finds out that they had some sort of insane ancestor who, like, connected with an otherworldly being that gave them this insight, but it drove them insane in a way that wasn't really great for them. And possibly had sex with them, and so it's possible they're part fish. Also, quite possibly part fish. Also, if we're talking about Lovecraft, have to bring it up. It's probably going to be intensely racist. Sometimes you're going to be like, oh, did my ancestors sleep with an otherworldly being? Oh, it was just a black person, and H.P. Lovecraft was upset about that? What are you going to do? So that's problematic. But um, aside from those issues, uh, I really do like his work, and the way it's been translated into this game is fantastic. And so like, I was, I was getting carried away there, but for like instance, the insight mechanic, insight is a currency in the game, but like... To even level up, you can't do it until you have some insight. You need one point of insight before you can even perceive the spiritual world in which the entire game is taking place. And then at some point, if you gain enough insight, you start to truly see how that world works. And it becomes more dangerous to you because you are perceiving spiritual elements that literally just could not be experienced until you had the insight. And on the one hand... It's, you know, it's all kind of superficial because then you could just spend that insight like you would at a store, lower your insight level, and then you don't see those things anymore and it becomes a little bit easier. But I really like that they were able to translate this idea of the better you understand the world, the scarier and more dangerous it becomes. I, it's great. I don't know. And it's also good that all of the Souls games are so narratively vague and... I don't say that as a way of complaining. It's just it's just a fact that they all start like you're put on a path. You're told, hey, there's some bosses you have to kill, and you're just kind of kind of figure it out as you go along. Yeah, no I mean it's 
Oh, go ahead. I was just kidding. It's, it's not like it's del- – it's basically just the attitude everyone gives you is you're – it's either like you should already know this stuff or you're just not important enough for us to sit and ex- – like it actually really brings out like how weird it is the fact that in most games like the first person you talk to in the game is like would you like to know more about the 700-year war between the gods that yeah. you know says secretly – in this one they're like – Ah, oh, man. Things used to be better, huh? Well, good luck out there. Yeah, everyone like looks at you like, oh, new guy, huh? Well, I've already told the last thousand people what this is all about, so I'm done. Like, you know what? You want this sword? Cool. Here you go. Have a sword. Go figure it out. My job is done. I'm over it. I mean, it's also like it's a throwback to like old school, like original Zelda and games like that, right? Where it's like, we don't need to. It's like we don't need to explain to you like how dungeons and monsters work. Well, and that's something too that I was I was thinking a little bit about with Elden Ring, and I brought up last time about how something that's really refreshing with Elden Ring as opposed to other open world games is so many open world games, um, particularly these AAA open world games where I think from software probably counts as like a AAA studio now. I'm not sure. Um, But is that they'll have five or six missions that they will paste 20 times each over a map. And it sucks. Like, yeah, it's cool that you have a map to explore that has content, but the content's not great. And then Elden Ring doesn't do that. Everything is pretty, I wouldn't say unique necessarily, but diverse. You're, you're not going to have the same two boss fights anywhere because they were thoughtful enough to say, oh, well, this boss belongs here and this boss belongs here. And that's the only place those two bosses should go. But another thing I was thinking, what we, like what you just said with the Zelda comparison, is that, uh, and I brought this up on an older episode and I won't get too much into it, but I, I read this you know, probably clickbaity, but an article that I thought made some good points about how Zelda, uh, the Link to the Past, was the first technically bad Zelda game because that's the first Zelda game where it's like, here's the list of things you need to do, here are the people you need to see, here are all the icons on your map you need to go to, and the FromSoft games, like the OG Zelda, are just like, here's a sword, the world is a mess. How, what are you going to do, man? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just an old man that gave you the sword. I thought you were going to help me. Jesus Christ. What are we doing? Um, and it's great. It's um, And I, I was thinking about it a little today, and I'm going to stop because this is going super long. But I was even thinking about it in comparison to the Metroid games where I feel like there's a real tension there too between how do you keep players from losing their mind from frustration when they are literally never told where to go and are bombing random walls and floors and whatever looking for any path forward versus, you know, saying, these are your objectives, these are your goals, these are the things you might have to do to get there, we're going to be with you every step of the way, so you're just having fun and you're never feeling like you're, you're lost or frustrated. Because I think what the, the FromSoft games do, in honestly, a very punishing way that isn't for everybody and that I am only now after years acclimating to is that they really just let you figure it out and it is frustrating and but I think I think that frustration is part of it because I think something that is getting lost in modern gaming is the need to actually overcome a challenge like I'm gonna stop because I'm gonna go on an old man rant if I go any further no I who cares go ahead to very briefly move forward. Like, I play a lot of JRPGs, and I feel like the expectation with modern JRPGs is that you're never supposed to lose. 
that. Like when you get to a big boss fight, the fun is in like seeing how much damage you can do and how much of a spectacle with your special moves you can create. But the thought of an actual game over is nothing. The thought of two game overs is treated as bad game design. Like I'll read review articles about RPGs. I'm like, oh, it's all going great until I hit this wall. And then, oh, the game became such a slog once I hit this wall. And I'm like, but the wall is the test. That's to make sure that you've understood everything up to this point and that you're ready for the next part. And I'm not going to say that that style of game where you can kind of cruise through without hitting those walls isn't valid. I like that too. I think it's good to be able to kind of like chill out and just watch numbers go up and feel great about the progress you're making. But I think it is more satisfying to have something that is fair but difficult and to have to look at it and be like, all right, I got to figure this out. It's that the game isn't treating me any differently than it has in the last four fights. So do I need to react better? Do I need to prepare better? Do I, I hate to say it, do I need to grind a little? I don't think grinding is good, but sometimes maybe just spending half an hour to get slightly stronger, your, your strength stat may be one point too low. That's fine. But yeah, I think overcoming and having to face that adversity is much more satisfying than, you know, just just gradually going up the slope, kicking ass the whole way. So, so this is slightly, uh, but in there's this whole without I won't get too far in, uh, into my tangent of, but there's this whole theory in Dungeons and Dragons that says that. Around third edition, it's it sort of lost it. Around the time Wizards of the Coast took over, they made a the third edition, and then that's really where Dungeons and Dragons kind of lost its way because the more it be- TPKs. Well, not just, but because specifically, it became so obsessed. Like the mechanics became so came to revolve so much around uh, character creation and optimization that basically everyone got really selfish about just like that basically the entire narrative of the game warped around okay how do i create a character with a cool backstory and how do i level him up and how do i make sure that like at level 20 he's super cool whereas in old D&D, the point, at, which is there in the name, was no, the the fun is exploring the dungeon. It's all about, like, the setting of the world, like, being in a world that's big, like in Dark Souls, right? It's about being in a world that's bigger than you, that's incredibly dangerous, and that if you're smart and clever and very careful, then you get to see, like, what's behind every door in the dungeon, but otherwise you get stomped on. And that that was, and that that gets lost. That basically, once you have characters, once you once the once the players know that every encounter is supposed to be balanced so that it's survivable, and that you know every dungeon is supposed to you know you can make it through and you can rest whenever you want, and you know even the even the boss at the bottom of the dungeon probably isn't going to be able to kill your whole party, and the whole point is just to like level up and find cool magic shit that people just stopped appreciating, like, the real soul of the game. I can see that. That makes a lot of sense. I think that is something that's really fun with Elden Ring, that I think works in Bloodborne and probably other Souls games too, is, yeah, that that element of genuine danger when you're exploring. <laughs> like, you know, it's... If I'm... You spend a lot of time running away from things. Yeah, well, if you're, if, so, something I've noticed that I'm getting better at, like, skills I'm developing is if I'm in a new area and I see treasure, I no longer 
run straight to the treasure. Um, I've been taught after many negative experiences that, oh, I should probably stop and maybe scour the perimeter of this room for any nasties that are going to jump out from the corners at me. Fortunately, Bloodborne doesn't have any mimics, so I don't have to worry about chests eating my face. But then I do have to worry about whether something is going to like drop from the ceiling immediately behind me when I open it, or whether something's going to teleport. And yeah, it's knowing that not only could you lose, but that you will lose, and that there are fights that... that, that and that's another thing, too, that um, I think I really... And this is getting like way too granular, but I, I think I really underappreciated how the leveling system works in, in Bloodborne and these other games, which is that regardless of what stat you decide to pump up, all the stats that you're putting points into, actively putting points into, are essentially um, all damage stats, and you're deciding what kind of damage you'd like to do. But regardless of what points you put in, your defense stat uniformly goes up every time you level. And so that there are times or like areas or bosses or whatever where if you're underleveled, they will destroy you apart because you're just not ready. Like you might be strong enough to kill something and if it breathes on you wrong, you will die. Uh, And so that to me is like slightly annoying, but it is that artificial cap that like kind of keeps you where you're supposed to be at that point in the game. But it is still good to be like, okay, I'm in a new area. I can't just take this for granted. Oh, but also, even though it's frustrating, you know, it's not a problem overleveling. <laughs> I've never yeah. gone to a new area and been like, oh, shit, did I do too many side quests? Did I fight too many times? Like, I'm here. And like, so when I was playing Final Fantasy XIV, uh, the, the online one, a big part of the reason I stopped playing it was I uh, was trying to just rush through the main storyline to get to the point where it became challenging because I wasn't doing any side quests. I wasn't doing anything to level myself up. I was like, I'm just going to go main quest to main quest. And like after hours of that, where like NPCs would be like, Oh, this next battle is going to test your wits and skill. And this animal is going to demolish you. And I'd go up, I'd have done nothing, literally nothing to specialize my character or make it any stronger than by equipping whatever strongest armor I'd happen to pick up along the way, doing, again, exclusively the main quests. And I would just annihilate everything within seconds. And I'm like, why? who plays this? Who is this satisfying for? And so that's the experience I don't want, I guess. I don't, like, Bloodborne has been a miserable, frustrating experience, but getting over that threshold has made me really appreciate it. And I would rather have something that I have to beat my head against for a while to get than something that is unengaging from the get-go and never picks up. So, there. Shaking my fist. Go play Bloodborne. It's not for everybody. I'm not even sure still whether it's 100% for me. But you're going to have a more interesting experience than, for instance, if you were to play Final Fantasy XIV. A game which... here Here's a first, maybe. A Nick anti-recommendation. Don't play that game. It's not a fun game. If you like social... MMO stuff, that's your thing, go do that. If you're looking for a gameplay experience, no. Don't do it. Boo. Kyle, would you like to move on to your recommendation? Sure. 
I'll keep this fairly short. So no, I've, I took so much time. Go as long as you like. Season well, 5 finale indulgence. It is true. This will be an extra special, extra long episode. But uh, I finally watched last weekend. I managed to complete my quest, which I had set out to watch every single Scream movie. Oh! I've only seen the first three, and I only remember the first one. So I'm excited That's, to hear about this. So I had actually, I had only ever seen the first Scream movie myself before this. And also I'm not a big horror guy. So, you know, I think I started, I had heard from several people that actually Scream 5 is really good. And that was sort of a weird thing that I kept hearing. I was like, well, obviously I'm not, I don't really have the tools to appreciate Scream 5 because I haven't seen Screams 1 through 4. And when am I going to have time to do that? Well, I found the time. So... It it seems unfathomable to me that our audience could not know about the Scream franchise, but just in case... They could be too young. They could be little babies, but you're right. So, in the late... In the mid-90s, Wes Craven, who had already had an incredibly long career as a horror filmmaker and producer, who was most famous as, at that time, probably still most famous, as the guy who created Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger, and had, you know, that had seen that entire franchise's rise and fall by that point. So every single Freddy movie had already been made by that point, except for Freddy vs. Jason and the night and the remake. So he had been through the entirety of the Friday, uh, I keep saying Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, and had tried to move away and do other things that were not horror related and didn't have as good a time, so he decided to go back to making horror movies, but he wanted to do something a little different, so he made Scream, and... It was co-written by the guy who went on to create Dawson's Creek. And so there are two things that sort of define the Scream franchise, which they're always about incredibly attractive teenagers who look like soap opera stars and who often have played soap opera stars and other things. And it is the definition of meta, meaning that within those movies... All of the characters have seen horror movies and are constantly saying, huh, we sure do seem to be being murdered by someone in a way that res- that like conforms to our expectations about how horror movies functions. And if that sounds incredibly obnoxious, it can get that way. But keep in mind that when the first Scream came out, no one had ever done that. So as annoying as you might think it would get, and it does get that way probably a little bit as the as the franchise goes on the first time it was really mind-blowing first to hear someone say i'm not gonna go down the stairs in the dark every time someone goes down the stairs in the dark they get stabbed by something at the bottom of the stairs in the dark fuck you we're gonna turn on the lights we'll go to it you know just like constant i'm not gonna say hey i'll be right back because you know what happens to the guy who always says i'll be right back he dies so it was kind of clever and it was actually the way in which they resolve how who the killer is the killer is a guy named ghostface but the secret of ghostface's origin uh is sort of is actually kind of clever in a way that subverts expectations and explains a lot about how he's able to be such a effective horror slasher monster without having any actual superpowers so that was an interesting movie, and it was a really huge popular mega hit that reinvigorated Wes Craven's career. What then happened, which gets really sort of takes it to a whole other level, is that the genre gets super meta. Meaning that in all of the sequels, not only have characters seen 
any horror movies that have come out in the intermediate time, but also in their universe, movies were made based on the events of Scream. And so people are constantly going, so people are not only like, you know, this is just like what happened in Nightmare on Elm Street. They're like, oh man, this just, we just went through this in the first Scream movie and now it's happening again. What are the odds? And so many people point to the second Scream, well, many people. My favorite film critic, Walter Chaw, points to the second Scream movie as his favorite and the best because it really is sort of the apotheosis of this whole genre where it's like, you know, the main character having just survived an incredibly traumatic, you know, horror movie incident finds himself caught in a sequel and realizes that she is now part of a franchise and that this is just going to keep happening to her possibly forever. And, and like, the existential angst that that causes her is actually more traumatic than the actual, like, person who is stalking her through her college campus. And then it goes kind of off the rails. The third one's pretty garbage. The fourth one, which was the last one Wes Craven was directly involved in, is uh, also not very good. But they made a new one recently... I can't, I don't know what else these people had worked on, but it's pretty good. I watched it. So every, so thing about the Scream movies is they have a recurring cast of not just a principal character, but several recurring characters. Uh, Courtney Cox is in all of them. Who's Campbell. Nev Campbell is the main character in, well, she's not always the main character, but she's in every single one and plays a significant portion. She's in a significant portion of every single one. And also Courtney Cox's ex-husband, David Arquette, plays you know, a character in every single one. He actually has the most interesting arc because they all sort of go through a progression, but he literally, in the first one, he's like the bumbling sheriff, like deputy comic relief character. And then over the course of the series, because he's just like, happens to keep being in them, he goes from being like the bumbling deputy to like the competent sheriff who has seen all this shit before to buy in this last one he's just like this hard drinking bitter he's basically logan (laughs) and he's like ah you got yourself another scream movie scenario on your hand he's he's like the guy in jaws who's like i used to hunt sharks for a living you know i know what to do here and it's it's just really so it's just really sort of interesting watching the stories evolve their narrative and so I guess I'd recommend you watch all of them because the fifth one on its own isn't as interesting if you haven't seen all of the ones previously, even the bad ones. But it's particularly interesting, the fifth one, because at this point, the movies have become kind of so meta. They're not only commentary on horror movies at this point. They're sort of a commentary on like the nature of movies and movie making and fans' relation to movie making. Like This one is really even less about the particulars of what does it mean to be trapped in like a horror movie franchise because at this point all of the principal characters have long ago accepted that they're trapped in a horror movie franchise it's just like what does it mean to be trapped in a franchise like what does it mean to be like trapped in uh, a cycle where you know genre tropes are going it's it's like it's basically like an episode of community play well i guess an episode of community without any jokes sounds horrible but it is <laughs> Yeah, this is a bunch of people going to school. <laughs> yeah, but it does it does sort of have like that feel like basically like the whole plot of this one is that like there are people who in universe identify so much with the Scream fil- films that it's part of their identity and they get mad when people mess it up. And so what that means 
without without spoiling anything in particular, like the villains' motivations in this one are they want to keep killing people because if someone isn't out there killing people, they're not going to keep making scream movies, and that would bum them out. And so their identity is like you know do violence and be like and do it in very specific ways not for personal glory or thing like that but just because the franchise is sacred and must continue and must con- conform to our very specific expectations or else we'll get mad and so it stops being like it gets a little bit annoying i guess for a certain type of person because there's at one point there's a pretty uh pointed reference to how like in universe the last scream film was directed by Rian Johnson and it tried to elevate the franchise and the fans all shit themselves so guess what that is a swipe at but it really is it's like yeah if you like like it's sort of an implication to the audience that if you like these movies you're basically rooting for the killer to always come back. You always want the main character to be in it because you don't want her to go away, but you basically want everyone she loves to be traumatized and murdered so that you can have the thrill of watching it happen again and again. And it can't change. It has to be the same people or you'll feel like uh, you're moving too far away from the central premise, but it can't, you know, it also has to be new and interesting just enough that things are different. So it's it's really uh it's about balancing all of the inconsistent and mercurial demands of the fans and how in universe if you give the fans what they want, it just means a lot of people have to die. Which is it's just sort of fun to think about. I thought it was really good and really well you know, it was well shot and well directed and the finale has a couple like has this great reveal in it where it pulls everything back and you're like, holy shit, I can't believe I didn't see this coming, but it's perfect. And also gratuitous and sort of indulgent, but indulgent like ex- it. It's basically fan. I guess what I'm saying is, Scream Five is fan service kind of done right in a way that you know, as someone who who's kind of nauseated with fan service at this point in his life and feels like it's destroyed everything, is still like, yeah, you know, if you're gonna pull it off, this is how you do it. And and I also want to say, and it was particularly weird, right? Because I'm not a big, like, I had no emotional connection to these movies at all. And I sort of just, the act of watching them all back to back very quickly just created a spontaneous emotional connection with the characters. Which is what you want in a franchise, right? But you sort of, it's weird thinking that you're too jaded for that to happen and then watching it happen to you in real time. Yeah, it's um, reminding me of, I... This keeps coming in and out of my mind as as we're talking about it, but um, I'm so sorry that I'm going to bring it up. Oh God, never mind. I guess uh, sorry. You've been talking about the, the scream fandom and the expectations, and a very similar thing keeps jumping in my head and jumping back out again. So I might just cut was this it, part out of the. Episode. Was it a movie or was it a video game? I think it was another movie. Very similar idea of the fans. Oh, in an obnoxious way. Was that um, Cabin in the Woods? It was exactly that. Thank you. Yes. Which is, again, that one's sort of a more obnoxious version of the same thing. Although I do like, overall, I like Cabin in the Woods, but there are a lot of people who are like, kind of fuck that movie, and I get where they're coming from, too. Well, so so I like Cabin in the Woods, but um, I remember talking with a friend about this, and apparently, I, I don't know what, so first of all, fuck Joss Whedon, and I'm going to be... I'm going to walk around mean mugging people holding my head up high that I haven't liked Joss Whedon forever because I think he's always sucked uh, regardless of, you know, him being an abusive person. But Cabin in the Woods, I did really like. And 
someone, uh, a friend of mine who does not like horror movies was saying that like, oh, well, it's weird that you would like Cabin in the Woods because it itself is, I don't know if this phrase makes sense, metatextual criticism to like make a movie for the point of criticizing that kind of movie. But that is what he said Joss Whedon's intent was, was like, oh, I'm going to make a slasher movie while pointing out how slasher movie tropes are themselves kind of inane and that, you know, that he wants to make the audience like feel bad for rooting for the killers and wanting these teens to die and that they need to actually ultimately subvert that cycle if they themselves are going to like survive and win. But uh, I don't think it worked effectively, somewhat ironically, because the movie itself as a slasher movie is so fun and interesting. <laughs> like, I don't know. If you wanted to make an example of why slashers are stupid and don't work, maybe don't make such a good slasher movie, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, if anything, I wish it had, had a little bit, like, the best part of that movie is the very, like, is the last, like, 20 minutes of it when all the monsters get out. And it's like, man, I, I, frankly, if this were the whole movie, it'd be a perfect movie. Yeah. Or this reminds me of another thing, for, further detached, but... uh Tim Heidecker did a stand-up special, essentially lampooning stand-up as an art form. But, uh, and this is secondhand, as my my friend uh, Sarah Aswell, a, a a cultural writer who who watched this, but that that she found that the the special itself was really funny and effective. And so, what do you do when you set out to critique something and then up making a really great example of it? Like it's you're undermining your own premise by being good at the thing you say sucks. I don't know. It's well, yeah, that's uh. So I know we've gone on to, but um, so just to bring this back around to my personal, the one that is heartbreaking and deeply personal to me, even though it's a giant franchise, is Star Wars. So the weird thing that nobody talks about, I mean, people talk about. Constantly, what are the problems with the trequel, with the uh, sequel trilogy? And there are all sorts of legitimate criticisms that you can have about it. But most of the thing that nobody ever, um, like, goes back to is the actual problem with The Force Awakens, which the problem with The Force Awakens was that in order to make a movie that was a direct, not like a distant sequel, but in order to make a movie that felt like what the fans wanted and expected from it, that a Star Wars movie should feel like, and also still involved like a large portion of the original cast of the, of the Star Wars movies, you had to make movies in which, despite the fact, in which basically Everything that happened in Return of the Jedi didn't matter as much as it seemed at the time, which is what you actually get, right? You basically – you get a movie where it's like, oh, we stopped space fascism for like between like – yeah, for like – for the period between like 1995 and 2006, there were no fascists in space and then everything went back to the way it was before and is now arguably worse. Nobody – it's a little unclear, um, yeah, the and, army is bigger and more cartoonishly fascist than ever. Yeah, and and the good guys seem actually less organized and capable of resisting it. Um, and that's where we're going to start. And it's like you can fanboy. It's like it's actually weird how much everybody fanboys about Luke Skywalker in Force Awakens because he is by any measure objectively a failure. So like all of yeah. the stuff, all of the stuff that people don't like, and I get. Like, I am no longer, 
like someone who will just like rake someone over the coals for not liking uh, the Last Jedi. But well, I do feel like what the I, I last think you and I are of similar feels about the Last Jedi. I think you liked it a little more than I did, but I am a defender of that movie. Yeah, I think all of the stuff that's really weird that people sort of respond like allergically to in The Last Jedi is really just trying to grapple with that fact. Like it's just like when when uh, Luke Skywalker says, ah, you know, maybe the Jedi aren't good at their jobs and we should stop doing it. Like that's not a weird thing for him to say in the context of the way that the franchise has been set up to yeah. continue. That and- they had this order designed specifically to prevent the outcome that they didn't prevent. Yeah. Twice. And, twice. Well, and, and, and it's so strange, too, to me that the fandom, like, this is, and this is maybe a, a comment about fandoms in general, like, I am not a Star Wars fan. I don't hate Star Wars. I don't have any sort of ire in general against Star Wars, but I'm just not someone that's ever really cared about Star Wars. It's just a thing that I'll watch and I'll like it or I won't like it and I'll move on with my life. That's how I feel about Star Wars. And so... I do not have particular emotional investment in any Star Wars element, character, whatever it is. And so maybe there's something I'm missing. But the extent to which people are invested in, like, Luke as this ultimate heroic archetype. Yeah, it's weird. the, The offense that I saw that they took, that he would look at all of his training and learning and experience and to be like... It was all a crock of shit, man. Like, I did it all, and look where we are. I'm over it. And to find that, like, personally offensive? Like, what? 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 Why are you so... In- it's a movie, and he's a character... Like, if anyone knows whether or not the Jedi path is worth following, it's Luke Skywalker. Maybe listen to the guy that's been through it rather than look at your perfect hero and be like, why aren't you perfect anymore? Why are you not the same yeah. infallible, beautiful angel that I just want to continue to exist in the same form from every movie for the rest of my life? Yeah, and to bring it back around, if you were that guy, you couldn't ha- – like, everybody was like, well, the movie should have ended, I guess, with, like, Luke Skywalker, you know, going out and destroying the whole First Order single-handedly with its lightsaber. And it's like, I'm pretty sure if you were capable of doing that, the mo- like, you couldn't have had a sequel trilogy to begin with. The opening crawl would have been like, well, there were some new space fascists. Luke Skywalker killed them all with his lightsaber. The end. Yeah, we all saw how powerful he was before. There's nothing he can't do. So this is, it's really just, this is a game of getting to Luke before they murder everybody else. And once we get to him, it's fine. Yeah, it's actually, it's like the Goku problem. That that would make it that much better when they got to Luke. And he's like, I'm out. I just, (laughs) I just want to drink this fucking blue milk. Another thing that so many people were upset about and that I don't get. Shitty old man Luke living on an almost deserted island drinking unpasteurized blue cow titty milk that's that's what a, that's what a hermit does like yeah. that's a, a, and again maybe it's my lack of investment in star wars that makes me like that movie more but not being so intimately connected to those characters i'm like yeah you know what i think it totally makes sense that some of them are kind of done with this shit like i understand the criticisms of uh, Last Jedi not advancing the grand narrative forward because I think that's correct, but I think what it did for the characters and their motivations and how to explore that is absolutely valuable. And for people to be upset that their characters aren't exactly what they wanted them to be, that they're not static people, it really irritates me. <laughs> 
Me, uh, well, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, boy, where I was until Rise of Skywalker, which we'll just not talk about. And I, I am totally on board with you. Which actually, no, I will say this about Rise of Skywalker. Rise of Skywalker. Which I haven't even seen, by the way. So it's, yeah. whatever you say, I am unqualified. Well, the reason, like, nobody liked, what was funny about Rise of Skywalker is it gave everybody the ending that they should have logically wanted, given how much they were bitching about how bad, like, things were before. And it was terrible. Like, there's basically a scene where, like, every extra and NPC who has ever been in Star Wars, like, randomly shows up simultaneously and been like, hey, we're here to be the good guys now. Let's save the world. And they do. And that's basically the end of the movie. And it's like, I mean, first off, it turns out, yes, that kind of blatant pandering is incredibly unsatisfying without some kind of incredibly hard work to build it up in a meaningful way. And also, it doesn't make any fucking sense because there's no reason for that. Like, if they were all just sitting around waiting for someone to, like, light the beacon of Rohan or whatever, then, like, where were they for the last two fucking movies? Where were they before the first movie ever started? Ah, I I think... This comes. This speaks to a larger issue with appealing to fans. And yeah. fans are garbage, and you yes. shouldn't give them what they want. No, never. <laughs> if they're it, unhappy, it probably. It, I mean, if they're unhappy, it could just be that you made a bad movie. That's always. It's always possible yeah. that you just made something bad. But if they're all unhappy, that that should not be taken as any kind of correlation or commentary on the product that you have created. Right. I, I think if if you give the fans exactly what they want, it's going to be bad because what they're going to want usually is going to be what they just had. Yeah. They're, they're going to see a Batman movie and they're going to be like, I liked that Batman movie. I want all of that again. But if you give me the exact same thing, I'm going to be mad. And if you do something interesting, I'm going to be mad because it's going to deviate from my expectations in a way that... Uh, you know, isn't canon according to the cartoon or the comic or the video game or whatever it is that I'm ha- hold most slavish devotion to in my heart. Yeah, I, and I th- now we're just I'm going totally unspooled here, but yeah, I I think it were I God King, I would not allow creatives to engage with fans. They would be siloed away from each other. There would be this this mystical valley where people would output their art and the rest of the world would experience it and those two worlds would never interact. Yeah, I think that's fair. Kyle, happy, we... happy season five. Happy now. season five. Double length episode. Art is bad. People who like things are bad. Let people create and fuck off. <laughs>